Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 8. It's an honor always to preach in chapel. It's been a privilege over the last six and a half years to teach here, not only alongside of some of the uh, some of these colleagues that I love so much, but also to serve with heroes in ministry, mentors in ministry, uh, like Dr. Aiken and, and Dr. Shaddix. So welcome to uh, preview students. I hope you don't base your decision on my sermon today, um, or, or maybe you should, I don't know. I did not go to this seminary, uh, but my wife did, and she turned out way better than me. So um, I uh, did a little cross-seminary dating uh, to, uh, to find my wife. So maybe you'll come and get a degree and a wife, I don't know. Um, But um, regardless, we're honored that you're here today. As Dr. Aiken um, said, I've also had the privilege of pastoring a church here in the city for about six years, and we just finished the Book of Romans. Now, I didn't take as long as John Piper on the Book of Romans, we, uh, or Lloyd-Jones, who didn't even finish Romans. He died before he finished uh, after going many years through Romans. I love all, both of those men deeply. But we, we chose not to take the Hotel California approach where you check in but never leave and instead move through it in, in about nine months. Uh, and this letter, I don't need to, to tell you, has impacted people uh, dramatically through the years. This year, we're studying the uh, 500th Reformation, of uh, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and Martin Luther's conversion is traced back to his experience with Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, John Wesley's conversion is traced back to hearing someone read the preface of Luther's commentary. And then even before these men was Augustine, who in this uh, dramatic experience explains how he heard someone singing, some kids singing, take up and read, and he goes outside and he finds a Bible, and he opens the first thing he saw when he opened was Romans chapter 13, and Augustine was converted and changed, a 32-year-old man who became a very influential leader uh, in the early church. And so I pray that this text would have an impact on us today. God's Word changes lives. And the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. And this particular section, Romans 8, 31 to 39, is one of the awe passages of the Bible. And you go back to it as a Christian over and over again because you need to have your affections stirred. There's nothing more dangerous than to lose your awe of God, than to somehow feel like you're entitled to the love of God. When you read all of Romans and you get to Romans 8, you just feel an enormous weight and sense of privilege, of grace. It reminds me of a story Sinclair Ferguson told several years ago. Some pastors from the Czech Republic were coming into the South, and they were being part of a pastor's conference. And on Saturday, the host took them to a large supermarket, the kind of grocery store that we've grown accustomed to in this area, but these men had never seen anything like it. And their first reaction upon seeing this massive supermarket was to burst into tears. And they looked to their host and they said, are these items for the, for, for the American government? It was inconceivable to them that all of these things were accessible 
to regular citizens. And likewise, when you come into Romans chapter 8, and you begin to read verse 1, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You begin to read that we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God, that we've been adopted by God, that the Spirit is interceding for us, that God is turning all things together for our good. And you get to Romans 8, verse 31 to 39, and you read that, you want to say, is this for every Christian? Are these privileges for all of us? And the answer is yes. This is a chapter filled with privilege that should make our hearts soar in worship. So here's how Paul begins, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. I don't know who began the, uh, the sports cheer, who dat, but the New Orleans Saints, I know, have picked it up. It's a very deep cheer. Who dat, who dat, who dat say gonna beat them Saints, when reality is almost everybody beats them. <laughs> but that cheer has been picked up by many others. I like to think of Romans 8, 31 to 39 as the who dat section of the book of Romans. You'll notice there in the text that I just read, there are four who questions. Verse 31, who can be against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against us? Verse 34, who will condemn us? Verse 35, who will separate us? And in each case, the answer is nobody. Who's going to beat them saints? Nobody. We are more than conquerors, not because of how awesome we are, but we're conquerors through him who loved us. We will face opposition. We will face trials. Romans 8 has been talking about the sufferings that we will face. But ultimately, we are secure. Ultimately, God has us. Ultimately, nothing can separate us. And so this passage gives the believer just incredible security, stimulates incredible awe. And so let's just have a look at those four who questions and then I'll close with a bit of application. First question, who can be against us? Paul begins by saying, what should we say to these things? Now, I don't think these things refers to only chapter 8. But as most commentators agree, Paul probably has in mind all of Romans up to this point. So that's a good test question. How would you summarize Romans chapters 1 to 8? That's Paul's question. Just to refresh your memory, Paul begins the book of Romans 
with this little statement that I love to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And it's an astonishing thing that you and I as Christians are loved by God when you consider Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, which tell us that we, were, we are rightly under the judgment of God, that you and I stand in great need. And then there's a beautiful pivot in Romans 3, 21. There has now been a righteousness that has been revealed from heaven, a righteousness outside of ourselves. And by faith in Christ, we are united to Christ and we have been declared righteous. Chapter four, it's by faith alone that this righteousness is received. Chapter five, we have been reconciled to God. Chapter six, seven, and eight, we have been indwelt by the spirit of God. Chapter eight, adopted by God. And we could go on. What shall we say to these things? And Paul says, here's a good summary. God is for us. God is for us. Now, that is a dangerous statement on one level because a lot of world religions, a lot of fanatics will say that their God is for them. But we we need not discard this statement even though people abuse it because it's gloriously true. If you're in Christ, God really is for you. You can't let your present circumstances deceive you. In the gospel, God is for you. He is with you. He's not opposed to you. And so I can't think of a better verse, really, to encourage my own soul on a daily basis than God is for me. Philip Melanchthon, who was a running mate of Martin Luther, loved this verse, and they tell us that when he was dying, he had his pastor read the Bible to him, and when he came to Romans 8.31, he kept telling him to read it again, read it again. The rest of our lives will be pondering the depth of this. And that's why, you know, I've been preaching at youth camps for about 20 years now, and every year at youth camp, there's this little tradition where everybody comes up to the front and has the pastor sign their shirt or their hat or sometimes even their Bible, which I hate. I didn't write the Bible. Um, And they asked me to leave a verse, right? And when I'm feeling holy, I always write Romans 8.31. When I'm feeling a bit rascally, though, I'll put Exodus 23.19, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk or something like that. (laughs) But if you pin me down, you know, I've got two or three verses that really, really just continue to minister to my soul, and this is one of them. I can't think of anything better today than the the thought that this God is for us. It's really remarkable. Now, here's the question. How do we know this? Is this merely wishful thinking? Notice verse 32. It's tied to verse 31. It's funny how that works, huh? He who did not spare. Here's how you know God is for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Something happened in space, time, and history that proves God is for us, namely the cross. Lest you ever doubt that God is for you, you look to the cross. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And now Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. Lesser. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God's going to do the big thing, Calvary, will he not also care for us? Will he not give us all things? I don't think this means everything you've ever wanted, but all things in the sense of Romans 28, all things necessary to get you to your final destination. 
all things to conform you to the image of his son. He doesn't redeem you to leave you. He redeems you and conforms you, changes you, takes you to your ultimate destination, namely glory. If God's going to do the cross, the cross is is God's ongoing proof of his present grace today and his grace tomorrow. We need not fear. He won't take his hands off of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See how big the cross is, Paul says. God gave his own son, and he'll take care of us. He's got us. He will hold us fast. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. If I take my five kids to Disney World and spend about $2,000, and we fly there, right? We buy tickets, and we've spent all this money on hotels, and we're driving to Disney World, and it says $15 to park. Do you think I'm going to look over to Kimberly and say, I'm not doing it? I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I want to draw the line here. We're, we're going to walk a couple miles, okay? I'm not paying the $15 to park. She would say, oh, yes, we are. We, we have spent thousands to get out here in the heat and sweat and be miserable so our kids can have a good time, right? If we're going to do the big thing, we're going to pay the parking price. See how big the cross is to the Apostle Paul. The cross is not just something that happened in the past. It has no present or future ramifications. The rest of our lives were living in the light of that cross. He did not spare him. He gave him. Therefore, he's got you. And that's really good news. This is how Paul begins this chapter, or this section, verse 31. Second question, who will bring any charge against us? Well, the answer is in the question, right? Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's the people that God has chosen for himself. Added to that next sentence, it is God who justifies. So if the omnipotent, righteous judge of all the earth says you're not guilty, you're not guilty. You don't go higher than than him. It is God who justifies. So more judicial language here in Romans. It's all through the letter, isn't it? We are righteous before God by faith in the Savior. It is God who justifies us. Paul's been teasing that out throughout the letter. And this gives us incredible confidence, doesn't it, for the future. We are secure. We are God's people. God has declared us righteous by faith in Jesus. And so we live in light of the fact that our greatest problem has already been solved. You know, if you fly at all, you you can tell the difference in people who have confirmed tickets and people who are on standby. People who are on standby are really nervous. They're pacing, they're on the phone, they don't know if they're gonna make it on the plane. But if you got a ticket, you're just chill. I'm good. You can relax. We have a confirmed ticket, right? Our tickets have been issued by the Father, purchased by the Son, and confirmed by the Spirit. Who's going to bring any charge against us? Many people will try to bring a charge against us, but we must go back to the gospel and realize that our verdict has already been pronounced. It is God who justifies. Third question, who will condemn us? Again, our conscience may try to condemn us. Satan may try to condemn us. Many people will try to condemn you. 
But notice what Paul says. Who is to condemn? This time he gives it a little bit more of a, a Christological answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who's going to condemn us? Not Jesus. He died for us. The one who could condemn us has laid down his life for us. More than that, he was raised. Romans 4 tells us, raised for our justification. And now he's at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He's interceding for us. He died for us, was raised for us, and right now, presently, is interceding for us. This is great encouragement, isn't it, in the gospel? Paul begins in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. N.T. Wright says that this is the foundation of Christian joy. No condemnation. And this is why we sing a lot as Christians, you know that. This is why we sing a lot and a lot of other religions don't sing. You don't sing when you're under a yoke, when you're oppressed, when you're trying to earn merit before God. How do you sing with joy? Romans 8 tells us why we sing. It's off of us. We've been liberated. For hundreds of years, the liberated people of God have filled the earth with singing. That's because Romans 8 is true. Is your heart singing today? If not, maybe you just need to marinate more in chapters like this. You see it lived out in uh, the book of Acts in several places. Acts 12, Peter's in prison and he's asleep. Acts 16, Paul's in prison and he's singing. You can sleep in prison and sing in prison for the same reason. People may declare you guilty, but ultimately your heart is free. You have peace, you have joy, because no one can condemn you. No one can bring a charge ultimately against you. This is why we sing songs like, my sin, oh the bliss, my sin, oh this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. It's true. It's true. Jesus Christ died. He was declared guilty. People were shouting of his guilt. But he rose. On the third day, he vacated a tomb in the Middle East. And he stepped out into the sunlight as the vindicated and victorious Son of God. And now he's interceding for us. What a thought. That Jesus right now is praying for us. Robert Mary McShane put it well when he said, if I knew Christ were praying for me in the other room, I would not fear a thousand enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's interceding for us. What this shows you is Jesus' commitment to you. Jesus is more committed to you than you are to him. And it's when you rest in that and when you revel in that and believe that, then you can take great risks. You can live with confidence. Like McShane, you don't fear thousands of enemies because the Savior right now has you and is interceding for you. Fourth question, who will separate us from God's love? Now notice something in verses 35 to 39. Paul spends double the time answering this question. I won't spend double the time in my sermon, but it's worth pointing out here. I mean, he puts the 
rhetorical pedal to the homiletical metal, as, as Michael Bird says. And what is he doing with all of this rhetoric? Well, I think what Paul is doing is trying to impress upon us the love of God in our hearts, not just to be convinced of the truth of Romans, but let it land on you. Let it, let it impress on your heart to feel the love of God, to know it experientially. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's important to, to see that, that Paul is not just one simple truth about God's love, but he, it's poetic. It's, it's, a, it's a triumph song of sorts. It's very possible to know good theology, but to have a cold heart. This is not being written with, from a God with a cold heart, is it? He's overwhelmed by God's love. And so he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through a series of options. Tribulation. So, various trouble in life. You could feel that way, couldn't you? If you were in trouble, does God really love me? Distress, that is just the pressure of life. Do you feel any of that today? Persecution. Paul knew this very well, didn't he? He's writing from Corinth to Rome, wants to get to Rome. We know from the book of Acts, he got to Rome okay as a prisoner. Beaten up several times in prison, perhaps about seven times. Will persecution separate you from God's love? I mean, if you were in a hostile area doing gospel ministry and you knew they were about to persecute you, what text would you marinate on? This will be a good one. Can that separate you? Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Note here, Paul had experienced all of these except for the sword. And then he quotes Psalm 42, which is kind of typical Pauline writing, isn't it? He just read along and all of a sudden he bounces out there with a verse you haven't read in a while. (laughs) Where did that come from? Psalm 42 is a psalm about the sufferings of the people of God. And I think Paul quotes it here to help us to see that suffering is par for the course for the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised by it, and we certainly shouldn't let it convince us that we're not held by God or loved by God. Paul answers his question in verse 37. No, in all these things, notice it's in these things. God doesn't always pull us out of these things, does he? It's in these things we are more than conquerors. What a phrase. How can you be more than a conqueror? What is that? In all these things, we're super conquerors through him, not in ourselves. It's not empty triumphalism. All I do is win, win, win. No, it is through him that we are more than conquerors. Through him who, notice it, past tense, loved us. Again, a reflection on the cross. He loved us. It's because we know of God's love for us in Jesus on the cross that it's even in the midst of suffering. We don't merely endure it, grit our teeth, and get through it. We know that in all these things, God is working together to conform us to the image of his son and take us to glory. In all these things, I think it's tied back to 8.32 and all these things, which is tied back to Romans 8.28 and all these things. God is using all these things. 
God has us in suffering. We know this because of the cross of Jesus. He's working in the midst of these things and it's through Christ that we persevere. Can any of these things separate us from God's love? No, not only can it separate us, but God will use it mysteriously, wondrously to conform us to the image of his son. How do you know that? The cross. It's the ongoing proof of God's generosity and grace, his providence in our lives. 38, for I am sure, notice here, Paul is convinced as part of the job of preaching to persuade, to convince. Here he says, my own heart is convinced. I am sure that neither death nor life, so things in this life, nor angels nor rulers, things in the spiritual realm, nor things present, nor things to come, that is, things in the past or the future, historically, nor powers, demonic powers, dark powers, nor height nor depth, everything, nothing, he says, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who'd that say going to beat them saints? Nobody. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Notice it there. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. God will not let go of his son, and we are in his son. We're united to Jesus. If you're in this room and you came in here for whatever reason and you're not a Christian, we just want to point you to the Savior today. It is in Christ all of these blessings I've talked about are yours. Now, what do we do with all this incredible Truth, this, this song of praise here from the Apostle Paul. Let me just offer three brief applications. First of all, let these truths lead you to worship. Let these truths lead you to worship. James K. Smith puts it well when he says, to be a human is to be a lover. We love stuff. Augustine put it well when he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself, he said. Accountability is very important, but affections are more important. You live out of the overflow of a heart. And the order of your loves will determine the direction of your life. If you love Jesus deeply, it will change your behavior dramatically. As a parent, you want to change behavior. Kids may want to change my behavior. How has how behavior changed? Well, it's through the heart, isn't it? You know how this works. If you've seen a teenage boy, I'll take my son, James, for example. He's 17. Hey, James, why don't you, why don't you take a shower, man? It's a, it's a great idea. Just go love your neighbor by doing that today. And James, have you ever considered deodorant? Hey, I think it'll, it'll smell great on you. James, why don't you get a job? James, you ever thought about washing my car? No interest in these things until he gets a girlfriend. Now all of a sudden, guess who's taking a shower? Who's using deodorant? Who's wearing my cologne? Who's washing my car? Who gets a couple jobs? Why has his behavior changed all of a sudden? Well, his heart changed. His affections changed. We live out of our affections. And one of the blessings of Romans 8 and chapters like it is it stirs our affections. These truths should lead us to worship. Romans 8.1 begins no condemnation. Romans 8 ends no separation. 
No condemnation, no separation. Let's worship. That's the first truth I see here. Secondly, don't, not only to, should we allow these truths to lead us to worship, we should allow them to lift us from discouragement. To lift us from discouragement. What discourages Christians? Notice I think Paul mentions the things that can lead us to despondency and, and discouragement. Sin has ramifications not just on your life, but on the lives of others. And this text is showing us the grace of God in Christ Jesus, his steadfast love for his people. Suffering can lead to discouragement, and this text has a lot to say about it, doesn't it? That God is even using it. And death can lead to discouragement and despair. And not even that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, my friend, the gospel is not just that which tips you into the kingdom and now you're on your own. Our whole lives were meditating on this gospel. The truth of the gospel leads us to worship and it lifts us from discouragement. That's why I need it every day. That's why I need it every day. You know, Martin Luther, he, among many other saints, had great experiences of depression and discouragement. And on one occasion, the story is told of his wife, Katie, who was a real pistol, who was really tired of seeing her husband mope around. And so she hung a black cloth over the door, which was a cultural symbol of a death. And she dressed up in a black dress. And Luther came home and he was like, oh, what, what has happened now? And, you know, what further burdens do you have to add to my already too many burdens? Who has died? And Katie said, God has died. And Luther got really angry. And he said, don't, don't blaspheme. And she said, well, the way you're acting, it's as if God himself has died. That little sarcastic rebuke got Luther's attention. He goes back to his office and he sketches on his desk the Latin word vivit. He lives. He does live, my friend. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. We will endure hard times. But we don't just muddle our way through this Christian life, do we? We live with great confidence. We live with a great certainty of our union with Christ, that God is not turning us loose. He hasn't redeemed us to leave us. And so when your tank is empty, you go back to the fact that the tomb is empty. Christ Jesus has been raised, and now he's interceding for us. Let these truths not only lead you to worship and lift you from despair, but finally, let them embolden you for mission. Let these truths embolden you for mission. Ray Ortland puts it well when he says, the felt love of God makes heroic Christians. You can endure almost anything with the promises of Romans 8, can't you? Like if you really believe these truths, you can walk into hostile churches, countries, plant churches in hard places because God's got you. The Spirit is in you. You know that God is working for you. Yeah, the book of Romans doesn't end in 8, does it? You get to Romans 15 and you realize in some ways Romans is a missionary support letter. Paul's wanting this, these churches in Rome to support his ventures in Spain to plant churches. Tom Schreiner says when Paul writes Romans 15, he's probably about 60 years old. 
60 years old and he wants to go to Spain to start churches. Maybe even learn a new language, Latin. What on earth would compel a guy who's been beaten up all over the Mediterranean world, now at 60, I want to do some new stuff. I want to go plant churches. Well, Paul had a great vision. He knew that God's agenda was to reach the nations. He knew from passages like Isaiah 66 that this has always been God's intention. And Paul knew the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The felt love of God produces heroic Christians. And so may the gospel today lead us all to worship as we consider what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. May it lift us from discouragement today. And may it do it tomorrow too as you meditate on the goodness of the gospel and the next day. And may it produce in us heroic Christians, people who say, God has us. God is shaping us. He hasn't let us go. He will hold us fast. Our greatest problems have already been solved. And a lot of that, we will go and we will make disciples of all nations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I pray for students, faculty, myself today, that we would never get over the wonder of the gospel. We would revel in the truth that God is for us. That God hasn't redeemed us to leave us. But he has us and he's shaping us. He's keeping us. So I pray that today your truth would melt our hearts, lead us to worship, lift us from discouragement, and embolden us for mission. May we sing of this gospel as liberated people. May we go make disciples of all nations as commissioned people who've been loved by a king. May we long to tell the world of Romans. Oh, that the whole world knew the book of Romans that unreached peoples knew the book of Romans. We truly believe the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And Father, I pray you would grant us grace to preach it in our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www www.sebts.edu We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.